0: I do hope you have a Bible. If you're at home, I encourage you to grab a Bible. Uh, We won't have the words on the screen today, so grab a copy of the scriptures and open with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Next week, we will be returning to our study of Mark after a little bit of a break. But this morning, Romans 5. Already mentioned, it is Valentine's Day, not a day that shows up on any standard church calendar that I am aware of. When I saw that February 14th would be a Sunday, I thought it would be a good opportunity for us to consider something that we refer to a lot, but maybe don't dwell on enough. If you grew up in a Christian home, one of the first songs you probably learned, maybe your experience was like mine, Jesus Loves Me. Jesus loves me this I know, for the Bible tells me so. We learn early of the love of Christ. As Christians, it's something that we, we reference a lot. We sing about it. We read about it in the scriptures we heard this morning, a collection of scriptures reminding us of the love of God. But I also recognize that for all the talk of God's love, it's something that we are. Prone to misunderstanding. It's something that many people struggle to believe. Although we profess it, maybe day to day we question. Yes, God is love, but does he really love me? Maybe you know what I mean. It's, it's easy to read the Bible and to be convinced of the love of God. And yet, I wonder if there are days or seasons for you where deep down... It could possibly be true that you have doubts. After all, you know yourself better than anyone. You know your weakness. You know maybe hidden sins. And you know that God knows these things also. So maybe there's days when in your mind and in your theology you confess the love of God, but deep down in your heart you have doubts. Does he love me? Or maybe you find yourself trying to earn the love of God. Yesterday, I doubted his love, but today I'm going to live in a way that's worthy of his love. I'm trying to earn it as if that's possible. It's one of the reasons I thought it would be helpful for us to spend some time considering what the Bible says about the love of God. There's some of us that need to be reminded that the love of God is not something we earn. We earn. It's not subject to change. It doesn't fluctuate with our good days and our bad days. Now, maybe that's not you. Maybe you think, I've, I've never doubted the love of God for me. Some of us are tempted to think that we can lose the love of God, but there's others of us who have a different temptation. Some of us have the temptation to believe that somehow we have earned the love of God already. Not something you would probably confess out loud, but it is a temptation to have the underlying sense that God loves me because of something I have done, because of who I am, maybe because of where I was born or to whom I was born or something that I've done. Do you see how both these temptations are similar? On one hand, we can be tempted to doubt the love of God because of the way we live. Surely he doesn't love me because of what I've done. On the other hand, we can be tempted to expect the love of God because of the way we live. Surely he loves me because of what I've done. You see how similar those are? Two temptations, and at the root of each temptation is the belief that the love of God is somehow determined by our actions. So while we may sing of the vastness of God's love, we may be living and thinking in ways that Betray what we profess to believe. And so this morning, we'll do something that may seem basic, but yet is important. To consider the nature of God's love for us. And the scripture we'll be considering is in Romans chapter 5. It's a passage that shows what God has done to prove us his love, and also what God has done to enable us to experience his love. In both cases both in the proof and in the experience of his love, Paul reminds us that it is not based on anything we do. I think we could summarize it like this. Maybe this would be something you could hang on to. That God loves us because he loves us. He loves us because he loves us. It's out of him. It's not based on us. And he's shown us his love in his Son, and given us his love by his spirit. Those are our two main things. He's shown us his love in his son and he's given us his love by his spirit. So, Romans chapter five, and the the verses we're gonna focus in on are verses five to eight, but let's read one to 11. Let's get the context that surrounds this great teaching on the love of God. So, Romans chapter five, starting in verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. May God add his blessing and work in us through the reading and preaching of his word. Okay, let's just admit what just happened, okay? We just read 11 verses that contain 10 sermons, right? 11 verses that help us see and understand what we've been given by God through Christ. And So before we focus in on those middle verses, let's just kind of get a quick overview of what's going on in these verses most of you know the ark of Romans chapters 1 and 2 he tells us of our need he reminds us of our sin he lets us know the problem that we are in we're sinners guilty before God deserving his wrath that's the problem that's Romans 1 and 2 you move we move into Romans 3 and 4 and Paul begins to introduce us to the gift of justification what's that Justification, the the idea that through Christ, through faith in Christ, we can be justified, seen as righteous before God through Christ. Romans 1 and 2, the problem. 3 and 4, justification by faith. And then in chapter 5, we start seeing the implications. What we have because we have Christ. We see those implications in what we just read. If you have your Bibles, just look there at verse 1. Here's sermon number one. Paul tells us that through faith in Jesus, we have peace with God. Right? Born enemies, born in sin, but through Christ, we have peace. Then in verse two, through faith in Jesus, we have access to God. We have fellowship with him. We have communion. Sermon number two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Verse two, we also get that through faith in Jesus, we have hope for the future, the hope of the glory of God. If, if you are thinking, if you want something to meditate on this week, just take one of these each day. Monday, think about the peace that we have with God. Tuesday, the access we have with God. Wednesday, hope of the glory of God. Hope for our future. Then in verses three and four, Paul describes how our justification by faith enables us to face suffering. In fact, he says that we can rejoice in our sufferings. We can rejoice knowing that that God has a plan and he's producing in us through our sufferings character, endurance, and hope. So you're keeping track of all the implications of our justification. Peace with God access to God, hope of glory, rejoicing in suffering, sanctification. And then starting in verse 5, Paul explains that the basis of all of this, the reason that we have these benefits, the reason that we have all of this is the love of God. What lies underneath all that we're given in Christ is the love of God. So in verse 5, we're told that we are the recipients of God's love. The love of God has been Poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see that all we've received flows out of the love for God, the love that He has for us. So that's where we'll be in verses 5 to 8, considering the love of God that has put all of this into motion. Two things the love of God demonstrated, and the love of God experienced. As we started, I pointed out that so often the temptation we have is to think that God's love for us is increased or lessened based on what we do. So he loves me more on my good days and he loves me maybe a little bit less on my bad days. But what Paul tells us here, what we're going to see in these verses is that God's love is never dependent on us. In fact, he loved us when we were at our worst Verse 6 again, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. This is the very heart of the gospel we believe, the heart of the gospel we proclaim, that Jesus did not come to die for those who were strong or for those who were gaining strength. He didn't come to die for those who were godly or those who were increasing in good works. No, Jesus came to die for weak, ungodly sinners. We see these words, first weak, think helpless, without strength, unable in ourselves to earn anything in the sight of God. Jesus came to help those who could never help themselves. This is what's established in Romans 1 and 2, that we are spiritually dead, we are helpless, there's nothing we can do to earn favor with God, and yet... It was at that point, when we were in that weak and helpless condition, that God sent his son. We were weak. He says also that we're ungodly. The right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Which is to say, that we were not like God in any way. Think about what godly is, that's something we talk about a lot. We want to be godly, we want to be Increasingly like God in the way we live, in the way we speak, in the way we function. We want to be godly, but he says here that we were ungodly. We were the opposite of godly. We weren't like God at all. But Jesus didn't come for us once we started appearing to be godly. He didn't see a potential of our own becoming godly in us. No, he came when we were not like God at all. He came for the weak, the helpless, the ungodly. Maybe you are tempted to think that the love of God rises and falls on what you do. Greater love on good days, lesser love on bad days. Consider what's being said here. That God's love isn't based on any good or potential good in us. While we were weak, Christ died for the ungodly. It's hard to wrap our minds around this kind of love because it's so different than the way we love. Our love and sorry to project this on you. Your love almost always rises and falls on the attractiveness or the loveliness of the object of your love. It's true, isn't it? Almost always our love rises and falls based on the loveliness of what we love. That's not true of God. He loved us when there was nothing lovely in us. And we weren't neutral. No, we were enemies. We were rebels. He loved us when we were weak. He loved us when we were ungodly. We keep reading in verse 8, we see he loved us when we were sinners. Paul just keeps using different words that say a lot of the same things, but he's proving his point. Weak, ungodly sinners, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. We could skip down to verse 10, where he says, For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who did God set his love on? Those who he saw as good or worth loving? No, he set his love on weak ungodly sinners and enemies. There was nothing in us that prompted God to set his love on us. Now, before we go on, let me ask this question, a relevant question, I think. Does this mean that our sin doesn't matter? Certainly not. Think back to two weeks ago when we were in Mark chapter 9 and Jesus himself said, if your hand causes you to stumble, they cut it off. And if your foot causes you to stumble, then cut it off. And your eye causes you to stumble, then pluck it out. We must be a people who are never complacent about our sin, quick to repent and quick to fight. But even as we fight sin and seek to grow in godliness, this is also true that God's love is not dependent on our success, God's love is not dependent on our works there's nothing in you that prompted God to set his love on you. And yet he did. And don't miss the way he shows his love. Verse six. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died. Two words, easily said, huge. Right? Christ died. God himself takes on flesh, lives among us, fulfills all righteousness, betrayed, crucified, killed. For whom? Weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. In verse 8, we get the direct connection to the love of God. But God shows his love for us. He shows his love how? In that while we were sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Consider the magnitude of what's being described and compare that to how fickle your love is. We love those who are lovely, we love those who love us, we love those who bring us joy and happiness, but God's love is different. God loved when we were completely unlovely. He loved when we hated him. He loved when we were enemies. And he loved us not only in word, but at the cost of the life of his son. In order to help us consider how remarkable this love is, Paul gives us a comparative illustration. You're familiar with this verse, probably. The question that it forces us to ask is, Who are you willing to die for? Who do you love so much that you would give up your life for them? Paul says in verse 7, One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. It's a comparative illustration. Few will die for righteous, maybe some for good. But God shows his love in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We could probably go around the room and you could, we could probably all give an example of someone we knew or have heard of who gave their life for someone else. There are those who give their life in service for our country. Those who give their lives to protect their family. There are even those who give their lives to protect strangers. But in almost every case, people lay down their lives because they perceive some value in the person or cause they're dying for. And even these cases are rare. It's rare for someone to die for another person, even someone who they consider of great value. And it's with that in mind that we're called to remember that Jesus died for us when we were wretched. There was no good in us. There was no righteousness in us. And this is how we can know the measure of God's love. He shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I thought it was interesting. I'd never noticed this necessarily before. But that word shows, both in our translation and also in the original text, is in the the present active tense. That God is showing continuing to show us his love. How does he show us his love? He is showing us his love through the work of his son. It's an ongoing declaration that his love is not conditioned on something in us. And if God's love was conditioned on something in us, then we never would have received it in the first place. And note this, Because I think this is an important transition to make. That after we're saved, the condition of God's love doesn't change. You say, okay, he loved me when I was a sinner, but now he expects more of me. And we could make that argument. He is changing us. He has called us to godliness. He has called us to right living. But Christian. He does not love you today because somehow you've earned his love or somehow you have kept his love. No, he loves you because he loves you based on who he is. Something we should never stop being amazed by, that God set his love on us. John says it well. We read it together earlier. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world. This is how he showed his love. He sent his son into the world so that we might live through him. Who's the we? Weak, ungodly sinners, enemies, right? And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the wrath bearer, the propitiation for our sins. Galatians 2, Paul says, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you are here and you doubt the love of God, stop and consider what he has done to demonstrate his love. He doesn't love you because of what you've done. He doesn't love you because of what you have not done. He loves you because of who he is. He loves you because he loves you. And he's shown his love in the fact that he sent his son to die for us when there was nothing that made us worthy of his love. Now, you think this is different than maybe sometimes we talk about God. It seems, Matthew, aren't you putting a lot of emphasis on us? Now, I would argue that this takes the emphasis off of us and puts all the emphasis on God. He loved us not because of who we are, but because of who he is. This flies in the face of so much teaching that puts us at the center. That somehow we deserved his love or we were owed God's love or that he loved us because of something he saw in us. This couldn't be farther from the truth. What he saw in us was weak, ungodly sinners and enemies, yet he chose to love us. When we understand the love of God rightly, we recognize I didn't deserve anything good. Yet he demonstrated his love by his son. And because of his love for us through Christ, we have what? We have peace with God. We have access to God. We have the hope of glory. We have joy in suffering. We see in verses 6 to 8, is the way God demonstrated his love, which is enough to keep us busy for some time. But there's more. Not only does Paul tell us that God demonstrated his love, he also tells us that we have the experience of God's love. Look at verse 5 again. Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. It's common for us to use the word hope about things that are uncertain. We hope our electricity does not go out in the storm. We hope our heater can endure the cold. We hope our pipes do not freeze. Not the way the Bible speaks of hope. In Christ, we have a sure and certain hope. We know our eternity is secure. This is our hope. We know our sins are forgiven. This is our hope. Through Christ, we have hope. And Paul says in verse 5 this hope that you have in Christ, it will never put you to shame. You will never have to say, Oh, I was wrong. No, he says, This hope is sure. You can have confidence, you will never be put to shame. Because of the hope you have in Christ. So many things we hope in that may let us down. Our hope in Christ will never lead to shame. And he says this, because. The reason we can have confidence in this hope is because of something that's been given to us. It's because of something that's happened in us. Hope does not put us to shame because... God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. In 6 to 8, we see the demonstration of God's love and it's something that happened outside of us. Here we see something that happens within us. God's love poured into our hearts. Descriptive language. We can all picture something being poured into something else. like A glass of water. Excuse me, a pitcher of water being poured into a a glass. The sense of the word is that God hasn't just sprinkled his love on us. He hasn't just dripped his love on us. (laughs) But we're told that he has poured his love into us. It's a sense of overflowing and full. I think the expression is full and overflowing. You know what I mean. His love has been poured into us, not just on us, into us, which is something that's hard to describe. I'm slow to speak of spiritual experiences, but I believe that's what's being described here. This isn't something that happens outside of us. It's something that happens to us and in us. When we come to God through faith in his son, God's love is poured into us. It's one thing to know about the love of God in our minds. It's another thing to experience the love of God in our hearts. I appreciate I, I had the sense that this was an experiential love, and I went to read others, and I appreciate what John Piper said in a, a sermon titled The Experience of the Love of God. He said, if the word experience makes you uncomfortable, then get over it. We experience the love of God and it's based on fact. It's based not only on our feelings but on the demonstration of love. We're told that God's love has been poured into us and the way his love is poured into us is through the Holy Spirit. God's love was made visible in the death of his son and it's made available through the Holy Spirit who he sends to dwell in us, the presence of God in us. So When we believe, he sends the Spirit to take up residence in our hearts, and the Spirit comes as the embodiment of the love of God. In this way, through the Holy Spirit living in us, we experience the love of God. In this way, we know personally the love of God for us. It's not only happened outside of us, but it has been poured into us. Easy to say, hard to explain, but it is similar to what Paul says in Romans 8 when he speaks of the work of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, he says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And he says this, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What we see in both these passages is the acknowledgement that the Spirit is in us testifying of something, right? The Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God and the Spirit testifies to our spirit that we are loved by God. Not loved at a distance, not loved in a detached way, but loved personally. The love of God that's being expressed here is not a broad brush stroke all over all of humanity. It's not something faceless, that he, he just loves the masses. All of that is true too. The love of God being described here as a personal love poured into your heart by the Spirit if you've believed. Once again, if you're tempted to think that this is something you've earned, Paul reminds us again that no, it's poured into you by the Spirit that has been given to you. Spirit is given, not earned, not conferred based on merit. We are saved by the Spirit through the goodness, kindness, and grace of God. Nothing that you could do to earn this gift. It is the work of God bestowed on all who repent and believe. Repentance and faith that is given to you by God Himself. In fact, it's only those who recognize that they can never earn the love of God who are rightly able to trust Him for salvation. We must recognize our need. Salvation is a gift. And when we come to Christ, when we acknowledge the work of Christ on our behalf, God's love is poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And in this way we are united with and experience the love of God. I said when we started that the love of God is something we refer to a lot, but maybe that we don't dwell on as often as we should. The reality is if we don't think carefully about the love of God, we may misunderstand it. We may misapply it. We may doubt it. We may take it for granted. But what we see here in just these few verses is the proof of the love of God. He doesn't only say that he loves us, he has shown us the magnitude of his love. And he's not only shown us his love, but he's given us his love as he pours his spirit into us. Not something we've earned and not something that we can lose. Isn't that what Paul reminds us of a few chapters later in Romans chapter 8? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from his love should stop us in our tracks. A love that we did not deserve and could not earn was shown to us at the cost of his Son, poured into our hearts through the Spirit of God, and can never be taken away. Which brings the question that we must wrestle with. The question is not, does God love us? But how should we respond to the love that we've been given? How should this greater understanding of God's love change the way we live? Should it draw attention to us? Certainly not. It should point us back to God. This text doesn't necessarily answer the question what do we do in response? But let me mention a few things just to get you started, and maybe it's something you can consider to continue to consider throughout the week. Since we are loved this way, what should we do? It's the so what question. Let me give you four things you can add to the list later. First, rest. A right understanding of God's love should lead us to rest in him. Again, we are tempted to think we must earn God's love or that once we've received his love, we must keep working to maintain his love. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. He loved us when we were at our worst and he continues to love us on our best days and on our worst days. He loves you. And I want to invite you to rest in the love of God know that you are his. If you have repented and believed, you are secure in his love. And your salvation today is not based on what you do. It's based on what he has done. An appropriate response to this passage is rest. But that's not the only response. This one's not on your notes, but His love and a right understanding of his love should also lead us to repentance. And at this point, I'm not necessarily speaking about repentance unto faith. But for those who are Christians, his kindness should lead us to repentance. Do not leave this morning thinking, I am secure in his love and I can live however I want. No, Romans 6 addresses this, doesn't it? Should we sin that grace should abound? God forbid. No, if we have a right understanding of God's love, it should humble us to the ground and propel us into a life of service of of him, of godliness, right? Not so we can earn more of his love, but in a means of worship of him because of his love. This is the right response to a proper understanding of the love of God. A life given to him. A life of repentance. A life of pursuing holiness. A right understanding of God's love should lead to rest. A right understanding of God's love should lead to repentance. A right understanding of God's love should lead us to love like he loves This is the call. This is what the scriptures tell us that if we've been loved by him, we should also love others. 1 John 4, verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. We are right to be amazed by the love of God. We are right to stand in awe of the love of God. We must also recognize that as those who have been loved by God, we are called to love others the same way we've been loved, which is a really high standard. Because He loved us when we were weak, ungodly, sinners, and enemies. And He has called us to love the unlovely, to love our enemies. We are called to extend the kind of love that's been extended to us to others. A right view of God's love should lead us to rest. A right view of God's love should lead us to repentance. A right view of God's love should lead us to love like he has loved. And it's a longer list than this, but this will be our final one together. A right view of God's love should lead us to share the invitation of his love and to his love with others. The more we understand his love, it doesn't puff us up. It shouldn't puff us up. It should lay us flat as we recognize we did not earn it, we could not deserve it. And there is no one whom he cannot save and whom his love cannot reach. As we recognize this, we should be eager to share with all of the grace of God and the good news of Jesus and the way in which they can be invited into his saving love. And isn't this a wonderful message we get to proclaim? That there is a God who loves, not because we're lovable and not because we deserve it. He loves us because of who he is. He showed us his love when he sent his son to die for us. And now all who believe or given his love as it's poured into us by the Holy Spirit. This is good news, and this is our message. This should be our proclamation to all people. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Maybe you've not heard anything new this morning. Confession. Sometimes I, most of the time, I want to tell you something new. But we come together to rehearse something that's old and that many of us know. That God loves sinners. And I also know that we can all be tempted to minimize God's love or to add conditions to God's love if even only within ourselves. So my hope for us today is that we would stand in awe and live in light of the love that has been given to us.